And, and another win over Indianapolis this week would do more than just hurt their record in, in the immediate term. I've been waiting all week to talk about this. Welcome into the Hot Read Podcast for Friday, September the 30th, the final day of September, folks. We've done it. October is here. I'm your host, Easton Fries, the director of published content and senior Titans contributor at broadwaysportsmedia.com. We're also brought to you by the 440 Podcast Network. Happy Friday, everybody. You made it. It's the end of the week. The weekend is before us. The weekend of NFL football is before us. I'm joined, as always, by producer JT, and I want to jump straight into my primary topic for today's show, which is the Jaguars and the Colts, the two other teams in the AFC South that the Titans are up against trying to wrestle the division away from. Now, the AFC South has officially become a three-horse race, in my mind, and this is all predicated on an article that I'm writing for Broadway Sports Media that I have written for Broadway Sports Media. It's going to be live later today, I believe, talking about uh, these other two teams in the division through three weeks, what I've seen from them, what we saw in particular from them in their week three wins, as well as what I think we stand to learn in week four. And spoiler, I think week four is going to be a lot more telling for these two teams than week three. Now, like I said, the AFC South, although it seemingly was a two-horse race coming into the year, that's the way it's been for a couple of years now, it's become a three-horse race. The Jaguars are officially in the mix. They currently lead the division. After a brutal start to the year, the weakest division in the conference, the AFC South, had a big week three going 3-0 and against the vaunted AFC West, AFC best. It was deemed in the offseason. I'm not so sure about that anymore. Nearly going 4-0 across the board. Nice one, Houston, losing to the incredible Chicago Bears. That was a, a rough loss for them. The Colts, of course, enjoyed another offseason of media love and adoration this past spring and summer. They were the clear favorites coming in. Vegas still likes them, by the way. And now the Jaguars are suddenly the darling of the division, getting two consecutive blowout wins and looking like a pretty legitimate threat. Now, I was curious what the public thought after these first three weeks about just the state of the union in the AFC South, where everybody thinks these teams currently fit in the power ranking puzzle. So I asked my Twitter following, and the results were almost 50% of you thinking Tennessee was the best team in the division, followed by Jacksonville, Indianapolis, and then Houston. Nearly 40% of you believed it was Jacksonville ahead of Tennessee, and then Indianapolis and Houston. And nearly 15% of you believed Jacksonville and Indianapolis led the division, followed by Tennessee and Houston. So 15% of you really down on the Titans. And people, you know, over 50% of you are really high on the Jaguars, voting that they are the best team in the division. And of course, my Twitter following is, as you know, a Titans reporter, the, the hometown team is going to have a pretty significant bias among my Twitter following. So I'm sure the the unbiased consensus is even more heavily in the Jaguars favor and probably more heavily in the in the Colts favor as well. Um, I don't believe the consensus worldwide is that Tennessee is the best team in this division right now. But I went back and I watched both Jacksonville and Indian Indianapolis in their week three wins. And I was left with some takeaways that I'm not really seeing a lot of other places in the media. So I want to talk a little bit about what I saw from these teams in week three, what those victories told us, and what I think we stand to learn about them in week four. Let's start with the Jaguars. I think the Jacksonville discourse lately has just been far too polar. Half of folks fall in line with the national media at the moment, which is falling for this team quickly. You know, on the surface, I, I get it, right? Sophomore quarterback. He was the golden boy coming out. They've got competent coaching now. I think Doug Peterson's a quite good coach, actually. They've got some real talent on the roster. They're in a weak division. And they've got a couple of big wins here in a row, big blowout wins. So on the surface, I think it makes sense. The people are quickly growing really high on this team. Now, AFC South fans, Titans and Colts apologists, they, on the other hand, 
they aren't really having that yet. They know what this Jaguars team has always been, which is a disaster. So they're understandably not yet ready to believe that this franchise is, is necessarily on the rise to prominence that others believe they may be. I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. And let's let's start by looking at what this team has kind of clumsily managed to do in the offseason the past couple of years. When you're as terrible as the Jaguars have been, for multiple years in a row, it's going to pay off eventually, at least in the draft process. Now, while the Jaguars aren't particularly known for their super sharp draft skills, I think the sheer number of dart throws that they've had recently have resulted in some real talent joining the team. They've they've gotten so many shots in the draft that they've managed to hit on a number of high-end talent players. Trevor Lawrence, of course, he was essentially the chosen one coming out of Clemson, and he's starting his second year leap, I think, already as a quarterback. He's each week, you can see Doug Peterson kind of rubbing off on him. The Doug Peterson effect on Trevor Lawrence each and every week, he looks quicker. He's not nearly as slow and deliberate in his drop back, in his reads, in his delivery. He needed to speed up a little bit, not rush, but speed up and be less deliberate, And he's been that each and every week. He's gotten a little bit better in that area. They've also got some other first round picks, especially on the defensive side of the ball that are really making an impact. Josh Allen on their defensive line is wreaking havoc seemingly every other week. He's a really, really talented player. Trayvon Walker and Devin Lloyd, their two first round draft picks from this past season are already making a big impact. And CJ Henderson, the corner from, I believe, 2020, Um, or maybe 2021, he was a first-round pick out of Florida, I believe, and he's starting to come into his own at the cornerback position. So they've got some really talented young players on their defense. But have they really proven it yet in 2022? This season, I don't think that they have. A close week one loss to Washington at the time was understandable. I picked that loss for them. I expected them to lose... At that point with this team, I don't think new coach, you know, low expectations, worst team in the league last year. I don't think it was reasonable with so many new pieces for them to be on the road and win in that week one spot against a limited Washington team, but a a more experienced Washington team. And they they lost close and that wasn't a good look for them, um, even though it was expected. And then in week two, they blow out the Colts at home, which was seemingly a big statement as was their blowout of the Chargers on the road in week three. But are we sure that those wins are really that impressive? I mean, Indianapolis has looked just dreadful in their first two games in particular. And historically, they play really bad in Jacksonville. Really bad. They've lost seven or eight on the road in Jacksonville in a row. Now, the Jaguars handled them thoroughly, but... I think that should have been expected. I picked it at the time. I bet it at the time. I don't see why anyone would have expected them not to at least be even even money uh, in that game, you know, a pretty tight matchup. And it ended up being a Jacksonville blowout. Now, another Jacksonville blowout in week three last week in L.A., I think it's a massive paper tiger, honestly. It's not as big as the false flag operation that the Colts ran last week, which we'll get to in a moment, but I don't see this Chargers win as nearly the accomplishment that many are making it out to be. Yes, they were on the road. Yes, they killed this team on the road that was supposed to be a Super Bowl contender, but look at the state of disrepair the Chargers were in. At this point, the Chargers quarterback, star quarterback, has fractured rib cartilage, having to get injections before the game in order to tolerate the pain. He's clearly not himself. He wasn't himself in that game. He threw two picks early and let the Jaguars jump out to a a sizable lead, and they were able to control the game from there on out. The Chargers' all-pro center is down with a knee injury. Their all-pro left tackle is out for the season with a torn bicep. Their number one receiver has a strained hamstring and isn't playing. Their top pass rusher, Bosa has a groin injury that's that's week to week and expected to keep him really limited for a while. And their top cornerback that they traded for in the offseason 
isn't responding as they expected him to from his ankle surgery, and he hasn't played it all this year. A healthy Chargers team doesn't get beaten like that, not by the Jaguars. Now, could this Jacksonville team be the truth? I think it's certainly possible. I have bets on them from the preseason and talked about them before the season, like I expected this team to be firmly within the playoff race come late November and December in the AFC. And I think they're on track for that. I still believe that they will be. But this team still has a lot of growing to do. And while I think this year is going to be a big transition year for them, I think they're a year away from truly being a competitor. Now, of course, we'll see. And over the coming weeks, this week, for starters, I think we'll learn a lot more about this team than we have so far through three weeks. I'm not saying this team isn't the real deal, isn't a real competitor. I'm just saying I don't think you can say that with a lot of confidence based on their first three weeks. Now, in week four, this Sunday, they play on the road in Philadelphia against the only remaining unbeaten team in the league. This game will go a long way in showing us just what this Jaguars team is truly capable of. And, you know, the Eagles... I really think they're going to be the ultimate test for this ascendant team. They're as hot as anybody to start the year, the Eagles are. And and if the Jaguars can handle them, then, you know, I'll be truly impressed. And I'll pretty much be ready to make them the new division favorites until further notice, I think. Because this Eagles team is the hottest team in the league right now. They, they've been a juggernaut and not been slowed by anybody yet. I think this will be the best team that the Eagles have played so far. Or, or, you know, maybe the most competitive team they've played so far. But in Philadelphia, with the with those with that talent, listen, I, I think the Eagles are a, a year ahead of where the Jaguars currently are. And I expect the Jaguars to have kind of a comeback to earth moment this weekend against the Eagles. But I think it'll tell us a lot more about this team than last week did. Now to tie it into the Titans before we move on to the Colts, the Titans and the Jaguars, they don't meet each other this season until December. Their first matchup is in week 14 in Nashville. And then in January, week 18, the season finale is in Jacksonville. Tennessee has dominated Jacksonville lately, lest I need to remind you. They've won 11 of their last 13 meetings, and they're currently riding a five-game win streak against the Jaguars. The Jaguars have historically, recently, been the only team in the league that the Titans handle regularly and seemingly easily. Now, the Colts and the Titans series, their two games, they wrap up very early this year, and we'll talk more about that here in a moment. The Titans and Jaguars series, of course, is very late. It's the latest um, interdivisional series of two games to wrap up of anybody in the AFC South. Week 14 and Week 18, that's really late. And before the season began in the preseason in the, in the summer, we looked at the schedule and it seemed like an annoying scheduling quirk at the time. Like this division is supposed to be Titans and Colts all the way. This is a two horse race, has been for a while. These, these series should have been flipped. The Jaguars should have been early and then pushed the Colts-Titans drama late into the year. Now, ultimately, it could come down to the Titans and Colts. There's a lot of season left to play. But it's quickly looking like the schedule makers got it right, after all. If the division comes down to the Titans and Jaguars, I think we're positioned for some really fantastic late-season drama. Now, moving over to the Colts' side of this conversation, the Colts have been by far the ugliest of these three AFC South teams so far this year. I don't know how you could argue otherwise. They managed to tie the Texans in Week 1, and then they got blown out by the Jaguars in week two. That was about as ugly a start as you could imagine. And they managed to look really bad in doing it. Nothing about this team was clicking. They looked poorly coached, full of roster holes, totally disjointed. And upon watching the replay of their week three win over the Chiefs, frankly, I, I kind of came away with the same feelings. I was in the press box for the Titans game last Sunday watching Titans Raiders, of course, and covering that. So I wasn't able to watch that game live, but we're we're keeping up with all the box scores around the league as the games go on in that early window each Sunday. And watching that game from a box score perspective, I left the press box talking to some of the other reporters just like I cannot wait to get home 
and see what this game was all about. See what truly happened, because it seemed strange to me. Of course, I don't think anybody expected that. And and yet they won against the Chiefs. And it just seemed on paper without having seen any of it like it might have been not all that real. I go and watch the replay of the game afterwards, and yeah, I think it was the ultimate false flag outcome of a game. The Chiefs did everything in their power to lose, and the Colts barely managed to steal the victory from them anyways. The Chiefs, I mean, what went wrong for the Chiefs? They were a special teams nightmare. Patrick Mahomes had an off day, clearly. I think the usually fantastic Kansas City September coaching was really lackluster in that game. You saw Mahomes and Eric Bieniemy getting into it on the sideline, heading into the locker room for halftime. Andy Reid's play calling was questionable at times. Usually this team is really locked in in September and they thrive early in the year, but that wasn't the case in this game. The Colts, for their part, I mean, they looked like a team with a good defense and not much else. Matt Ryan has looked all but washed to begin the year, but his surroundings really, I'm not sure whether or not this is a Matt Ryan problem or a what around Matt Ryan, what they have around Matt Ryan problem, right? The offensive line shaky at best. His weapons have been anything but threatening. And I think his coach stinks. I mean, I've made that clear. I think, I think that Frank Reich is just a, a not, very good coach. He's not a horrible coach, but he he does not elevate that team. So I don't think the Titans have any excuse not to win this weekend, in my eyes at least. I, I think they're the better team. We'll talk about them later in this episode with best bets. Uh, yes, I'll be taking them for a fourth straight week unless JT takes them from me. I can guarantee you that. I love their number and the hook this week. And, and another win over Indianapolis this week would do more than just hurt their record in in the immediate term. I've been waiting all week to talk about this. So an article came out by Zach Kiefer earlier this week. He covers the Colts for The Athletic. Um, it's titled, Why Colts Owner Jim Ursay Will Be Fired Up for the Titans on Sunday. And it details this closed door in person. It was dubbed in the article a come-to-Jesus meeting that was called by Jim Ursay a year ago in September. Now, Indianapolis at the time had just come off of a really uninspiring loss in Nashville. They fell to 0-3 after their week, week three loss to the Titans. And it was it was just a nightmare start for the team with the new quarterback, Carson Wentz. And Ursay, of course, was upset about this. But the topic of this meeting was more than just about their pitiful start. It was to address the Titans' dominance over his franchise in recent years. This is a quote from the article. Quote, do you like being dominated? <laughs> End quote. Jim Ursay asked them that day one of those rhetorical questions that are best left unanswered. Quote, because you're getting your ass kicked. Unquote. Oh, we have to get past Tennessee, he continued. Well, we don't. Not until somebody stands up and does something about it. The Colts, the Colts have spent a couple years now. Uh, well, well, so the Colts spent years owning the Titans with Manning and Luck, of course. Those two quarterbacks absolutely owned the Titans. Luck literally never lost to them. But the, the Indianapolis fortune has run out. In, in recent years, it's shifted to the Titans' side of the matchup. Ryan Tannehill is 4-1 and one against his division rival. He's won all three of his games that he, he's played in Indianapolis. And, and they've not only won this rivalry on the road lately, but the Titans have done it in explosive fashion. Their offense has scored 31, 34, and 45 points on the Colts in their last three trips up to Lucas Oil Stadium. The Titans and the Colts, they play, of course, this week, and then they play again in week seven on October 23rd. So the Titans have the chance here to kill Indianapolis's division hopes before Halloween, once again. In fact, one week earlier than last year. We thought last year the series wrapped up early. This year it wraps up before the midway point of the season. And, you know, a Titans sweep of the Colts in 2022, it would send the Colts to, at best, 1-3-1 and in the division and a 3-3-1 and record overall. And that would basically scuttle any hope they had at a division championship, I think, before the midseason of the year. So that should be the Titans' goal, and that starts, of course, 
this Sunday in Indianapolis. So that's my big takeaways. Ultimately, the big point is this. The Colts and the Jaguars are the Titans' primary rivals and competition in this division right now. They both had wins last week that I found interesting and for different reasons I found to be very misleading. They both have opportunities this week, I think, the Jaguars in particular, to get wins that I think will be more meaningful and tell you a lot more about these two teams the Titans have to get through if they mean to win the AFC South. And with that, let's get to JT with the news. Getting into the news on a, this Friday morning, we're going to talk about the injury report from yesterday. We'll start with the Titan side of it. A couple of DMPs still on the injury report with Zach Cunningham with an elbow and Amani Hooker with a concussion still did not practice. A couple of new did not practice. Ugo Amadi with that ankle was downgraded from a limited on Wednesday to a did not practice on Thursday. And then guard Nate Davis and wide receiver Cody Hollister also did not practice on Thursday. So with Hollister, I don't think anybody's all that upset about that, to be honest with you, um, besides the Titans coaching staff. I don't know what they're going to do without their precious third down wide receiver. Um, Ugo Amadi is tough because man just cannot stay healthy. Um, that neck injury is continuing to plague him. And like we've been saying since he sustained it before the first game, it sounds like one of those things where he just pulled a muscle and it, that's the kind of thing that just takes forever to get healthy and is so easy to retweak. So that's frustrating, I'm sure. Nate Davis is an interesting one. He was added midweek, the, mid, the, the dreaded midweek add uh, with a knee injury. He did not practice on Thursday. We'll see today later on on Friday, whether or not he gets back out there, they of course need him uh, badly. There's not a whole lot of depth on this offensive line, and he's one of the best, if not the best, offensive linemen they've got right now. Um, who? Let's see. Who, who else? I'm not looking at it right now. Who else did you mention again? I feel like I had one more. Um, Zach Cunningham note. and Amani Hooker. Yes, and were Hooker. The two so big DMPs. right, right, right. So Hooker with the concussion out on a Wednesday and a Thursday. We'll see later today whether or not he's back out there. But when you are still in concussion protocol on a Thursday, that typically means you're not going to be able to go that week. Um, so I would expect them to be rolling with Kevin Byard as their sole starting safety in this game and then have to go with a guy like Lonnie Johnson, perhaps, to uh, to fill in there. And then Zach Cunningham, who's had a rough start to the year. Brutal for him to be looking like he's not going to play this week. Their linebacker depth, we've talked about this, is incredibly thin. I mean, incredibly thin. The backup options there are a bunch of big, fat question marks and no names. So that's tough. It looks like the Titans are going to have to make do without him. That's going to hurt in the, it should on paper hurt in the run defense, but he's not been all that great on run defense so far this year. So we'll see what kind of impact it actually has. A couple of limited practices yesterday on Thursday. Uh, tight end Austin Hooper was limited uh, upgraded from a DMP on Wednesday to a limited right. on Thursday with the neck injury. Ola Daney, another limited practice with him with that neck injury. And then Kyle Phillips also with a limited participation with that shoulder. And then Bud Dupree went from a full participation on Wednesday to a limited participation on Thursday with a hip injury. Yeah, so you've got an upgrade and a downgrade here. The Bud Dupree one being the downgrade from full on a Monday, which was or on a Tuesday rather, which was very encouraging. Um, you, you saw, or Wednesday rather, getting my days all mixed up now. On Wednesday, he was full. On Thursday, he was limited. It's going to be really vital to see today on Friday whether or not he is going to be out there practicing with that hip. They need him back badly. We've discussed this for two weeks now. Um, he needs to be back out there. He said in his press availability, I believe on Wednesday, that he was feeling good and uh, sounded like he was hoping to play. May have suffered a setback. We'll have to see. Kyle Phillips' shoulder injury lingering a lot longer than I think we expected it to. He sustained it at the end of that first game and then ended up playing in week two in Buffalo, but was pretty limited in his effectiveness. And then in week three, he was inactive and, and was out with that shoulder injury. To still be dealing with it is, uh, I think, a, a relatively decent-sized cause for concern. Um, it's something to monitor for sure. 
And then the upgrade with Austin Hooper back at practice, that's a positive thing. He's a guy that they would love to have as as a weapon in the blocking and in the passing game. And so that's a good thing for the Titans. And then a couple of full participations for the Titans. Kristen Fulton logged a full practice yesterday dealing with that knee injury. And then Traylon Burks is back at practice after dealing with an illness. Yep, not a lot there. Traylon Burks had an illness on Wednesday. Not surprising that he's back feeling better. And Christian Fulton being back uh, after being limited, I believe, at the beginning of the week with that knee injury. He is the biggest piece that this defense must retain right now and is incredibly important that they have him out there. So for him to be back full dealing with that knee injury and uh, what, you know, we'll see on Friday for sure. But if he's full again, that's really, really great news for Tennessee. Shifting over to the other side of the ball for the Indianapolis Colts. The biggest news on their front is Shaquille Leonard logged two full participations this week dealing with that back injury. So it looks like he is going to be a go for this week. Although a couple other big names for that Colts defense, Julian Blackman and DeForest Buckner, both have not practiced yet this week, logging two DNPs. Yeah, so Buckner is the biggest piece there to me. The fact that he's their uh, biggest starter that has not played or has not practiced rather twice this week. I think it's going to be really interesting to see whether he's out there on Friday. Of course, if he's out of practice all week long, that's looking pretty bleak for his uh, prospects for this weekend. His his matchup against the Titans offensive line. DeForest Bugner versus Aaron Brewer was going to be or is going to be, depending on if he gets back and plays, a nightmare for Tennessee. That's a nightmare matchup. DeForest Buckner against any NFL lineman is usually a mismatch. He's a monster uh, rushing and in the in the run protection game. But Aaron Brewer being an undersized guard, that's the side of the ball that he likes to line up on anyways. He, he was going to or is going to just murder him and Aaron Brewer is going to need help all game long to handle DeForest Buckner. So that's that's a huge one to watch, I think, in this game. The last time the Titans played the Colts without DeForest Buckner was a game that Derrick Henry ran for, I believe, nearly 180 yards and three touchdowns, and the Titans scored 45 points. So him being there is a big deal for this Titans team on the offensive side of the ball. Julian Blackman, that's a significant piece for them. Whether or not he plays will be a, a big deal. And then, yeah, like you said, they had a number of starters out on Wednesday that returned to practice on Thursday, but one key starter that practiced both days was Shaq Leonard. I think it's not all that shocking that he's back. You know, he was expected to be back at the beginning of the season, suffered a lot of setbacks with his multiple, I believe, back back and neck injuries that were, it's nerve related. And so it makes it tricky that the setbacks kept coming, but he's practiced in full all of last week. The first two days of this week, it's looking like he's going to be back. And in his press availability, he's talked about how he wants to be back. So I'd expect his debut for 2022 to be against the Titans. Yeah. And like you said, a bunch of people returning. We got uh, cornerback Stephon Gilmore, center Ryan Kelly, defensive end Yannick Ngakwe, and running back Jonathan Taylor all logging full participations on Thursday. Yep, Jonathan Taylor being back, uh, not surprising. It sounded like him being out that first day, along with a lot of these guys out on Wednesday, uh, a bit of a maintenance deal for a lot of veterans. So uh, the Colts looking like they're trending in the right direction in terms of health. A couple of key concerns that might be out, but all in all, looks like they're going to be pretty complete to play on Sunday. A couple of quick points here before we finish up this news segment here. Titans special teams coordinator Craig Ackerman said the punt return duties will be a day-by-day basis as far as whether it'll be Robert Woods or Kyle Phillips. So that'll be interesting to see going into this week's matchup. Very interesting. Ultimately, if Kyle Phillips is healthy, it should be Kyle Phillips. I know that he's had issues with um, you know catching the ball cleanly and turnovers in the special teams game but once he gets his hands on the ball he's clearly the best punt returner that this team has it should be Kyle Phillips now if he's not healthy then Robert Woods makes sense and I guess that's what Ackerman is saying here but I'm, I'm assuming and also hoping that he doesn't mean when they're both healthy they still haven't made their mind up it should be pretty clear it's Kyle Phillips 
Another point, if there's one way that the Titans can stop the Colts this weekend, it's going to be on that third down defense. If we look mm -hmm. at the stats through three weeks so far, the Titans rank second best in the league in third down defense, only allowing eight first downs on 35 third down attempts for a third down percentage of 22.9%, right behind the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, so this is a far cry from what the Titans were just two years ago, the third down defense that plagued them in 2020, that defense's low point in the last four or five years. They were allowing essentially everything on third down, third and 10, third and 15, third and 18. It didn't matter. Teams were converting. Now this team is stopping everybody on third down. Many online have been quick to point out that their fourth down defense has been not that great. They've stopped a lot of teams on third down, but they've gone forward on fourth and, and converted uh, a large percentage of the time. That's what you want, though. I think forcing teams into fourth down, whether they end up converting or not, is a, a secondary issue. And obviously you'd prefer them not to. And that's an element of their game that they can improve upon. But the fact that they are forcing teams to get to fourth down and not allowing first down conversions on third is a big deal for this team. And it's a big step from where they were just two years ago. Looking at the other side of the ball, let's talk about the Titans play action usage so far through three weeks. In week one, they started off with a 37.1% play action usage. It went down in that second game versus the Bills to a 31.8%, but then shot up drastically in the third week against the Raiders, going to a 46.4%. And so this is something we've seen for a couple of years now, especially with Ryan Tannehill, this Titans offense, when they maximize their play action usage, they win games. And so these first two games losses at 37 and 31% play action, and then this third game at 46.5% play action being their first win of the of the year. It, it's a small sample size, but you can increase the sample size by adding the last two years, and the trend is clear. When the Titans maximize play action usage in the offense, they win games. And I think you, you have the stats right here for Ryan Tannehill with and without play action. This bears this point out. Yeah, Tannehill with play action so far this year is 21 for 30, 328 yards, a touchdown and interception, and a 10.9 yards per attempt. Versus without, he's 29 for 50, 319 yards, two touchdowns and two interceptions, but only 6.4 yards per attempt. Right, so with he's completing over two-thirds of his passes as opposed to just under three-fifths of his passes without. Uh, he's got essentially the same number of yards on 20 less attempts. Um, he's got almost, no, all, just over four yards per attempt more with play action and uh, has, has a nearly three yards additional average depth of target with play action. So play action is incredibly beneficial to Ryan Tannehill. That's pretty clear at this point. Again, the Titans need to maximize that usage to win the games. One last thing to note, uh, let's talk about the wardrobe for the Titans this week. Riches report. The Titans will be decked out in white jerseys and white britches with navy blue socks in Sunday's game versus the Icy Colts. whites. I love it. It's the Stormtrooper outfit. For those of you online that get irrationally upset, people call it the Stormtrooper uniform. Uh, I like it. The Titans historically are pretty successful in this uniform. And after the Thursday night game with the Bengals and their Icy Whites, I'm digging the Icy Whites right now. So I like that they're rocking with it. All right. That is JT with the news. All right. It is a James Foster Friday. And you know what that means? Our buddy James Foster is here with us to discuss the Titans in week three and then look ahead to week four. James, how's it going? I'm feeling great. How you doing? Doing great. Let's talk about the Titans in week three before we look ahead to this week's game. Obviously got their first win of the year. Looked really great for a half. Looked not so great for a half. When you went and looked at the tape from this game, was there a significant change in approach um, from the Titans game plan standpoint that you saw as opposed to their first two weeks that led to this win? Or do you think that it was just a matter of being a better team playing better? Yeah. So when you watch the, when I watch the broadcast, um, the great thing about my analysis being 
almost entirely film focused is that I can't really have takes until like Tuesday or Wednesday. So <laughs> yeah. love that. But, um, you know, when you watch the broadcast, it's like, man, this defense is soft. This is reminding me of uh, 2020 defense. Right. But when I watched the tape, so the Titans played Sports Info Solutions charted them as playing 13 snaps of cover two. Um, I charted them with 17. Either of those are a Mike Vrabel record. Um, the most that he's played before that was 12 in a single game. And it was, they ran, when they weren't running cover two, they were running a ton of cover two man. Um, and basically what it was is every every single coverage they were playing was too high. And on Devontae Adams' side, they would be playing man coverage and then um, they would have a cone, what's called a cone check to his side, which means that the safety um, brackets him from the inside and the the corner that's on that's manned up on Devontae Adams uh, plays really aggressive press coverage with outside leverage. And so you're basically getting a double team on Devontae Adams. And then on the other side, away from Devontae Adams, they would just play like cover two zone, um, just like spot drop. And so when you're devoting two players to one player that's giving you a numbers disadvantage in other places and so that's why you saw so many big plays uh, you know also terrence or not i keep calling terrence mitchell uh lonnie who got cooked who kept getting cooked terrence mitchell and lonnie johnson are uh interchangeable in my mind yes who which of them got oh, cooked? Wait, was it, it was it was Ter- it was terrence mitchell okay. that was getting cooked all game yeah terrence mitchell didn't help the cause but um, they were making a conscious choice to say, all right, we're going to, we're going to be kind of weak on this one side of the field, but we're not going to get beat by Devonte Adams. And they didn't. And, um, you know, I think they did a great job with that defensively. Um, offensively though, I, you know, it was really the same story that we've seen, um, the first, you know, through the first three games where it's like, whatever they're doing in the week, you know, in the days leading up to the game, as far as, um, you know, I think they only don't they don't they only script like the first eight plays or first 10 plays. I don't think they do the first 15. Yeah, they, but whatever they, they don't. Script it's, it's a small and number. Like, whatever they script and um, whatever they whatever philosophy they kind of craft going into the game, they do a great job of that in the first half, and then they pretty much abandon it in the second half. So, um, you know, if you look at like the the amount of early runs that they call mm-hmm. first half versus second half, I don't have the numbers with me, but I remember looking that up, and there was a huge disparity there. Um, and you know, just in general, the play calling is a lot less creative. I did a video kind of detailing that, um, basically just breaking down a lot of. Um, a lot of what's his name, Todd Downing's uh, play calls in the Buffalo game. And like the first couple drives, you know, they're doing a lot of cool stuff. And then, you know, there's a lot of just kind of little stuff that offensive coordinators need to manage, like having, you know, who are, what side of the formation are you lining the tight tight end up on? Um, My choice would be to have it on Dennis Daly's side as he tries to block Von Miller um, but that's just mm. me, you know, so stuff like that, that, that Todd Downing is not great at, um, it kind of just pops up throughout the game. They, you know, he, he did actually do a good job of moving the pocket a lot to, uh, to, you know, Chandler Jones and Max, Cro- <clears throat> Max Crosby to, to keep them from beating them because, right. um, you know, NPF, I have a video coming out on him today. I think he's been really impressive. Dennis Daly was he's the worst play i'm not being hyperbolic he's the worst player i've ever individually watched that's a starter um wow and outside of i lied tay crowder linebacker for the giants is the worst player anyways um <laughs> hey catching but, straight so, this morning so they did a good job of using a lot of uh play action and rollouts uh to to keep Max Crosby and Chandler Jones from being able to pin their ears back and stuff. So that, that is one thing that I think they did a better job with, but yeah, you really saw that conservative play calling uh, creep up in the second half again. That's fascinating. So talking to 
Mike Herndon this week, he actually, when he went and watched the film, had a little bit of a different perspective. He thought the second half woes on offense were just as much, if not more, due to a failure of execution on the part of the players as opposed to the play calling getting conservative. Now, I think I agree with you that generally the play calling got uninspired, uncreative, really conservative in the second half. But going back and watching some of that film for myself, there was certainly some execution issues in the second half. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, Mike is someone who, um, if he and I have a, a different opinion, I will always go back and reevaluate because, um, you know, he's usually pretty right. So I'll go back and check that for sure and just kind of rewatch, um, see where I would place more blame. That is, I don't know, I... I've just I've grown so tired of that argument that we do like after every game where it's like, you know, the play calling and the execution will both be a disaster. And then we just like debate of like, well, is it on the players (laughs) for not executing or is it on the coaches for putting the players in a bad situation? Maybe it was everybody. Someone comes, the smartest person in the room comes in and says, no, guys, it's on John Robinson for drafting. (laughs) And then someone else says, it's on Amy Adams Strunk for, for employing them. This horrible leadership in place, and then someone else says, "It's on Bud Adams for <laughs> his grave. This trash franchise to this even trashier city, and I then yeah, you know, it, we can just go on and on. But, uh-huh. um, but yeah, no, I mean, I I'm not gonna say that like. I can remember specific individual plays where there's execution. I can't remember if issues. I can't remember first half or second half, but um, yeah, I don't know. It's just in all seriousness, they're like evaluating a, an offensive coordinator. You need a huge sample size. At least I do like, right. Just, you know, sitting there and, and evaluating every individual play 80% of any offensive coordinators play calls in a given game are going to be just like standard, you know, and I can't sit here and say, Oh, this specific time that they ran, outside zone on first down like that's that's the problem it's more like over a span of a season you need to be running on early downs a lot less you know like so it's it's more with like larger scale tendencies that a lot of my criticisms come from um as you know as opposed to just like any individual time that i think they should have passed the ball let's talk about the titans offensive line in this game i remember watching the game live thinking oh man these tackles that we were really concerned about coming into the game you know they they looked better in this game than i thought and then i watched some of the film and that opinion changed i thought that they had a kind of rough day personally um which isn't all that shocking against two really good pass rushers what were your thoughts on some individuals on this offensive line and the unit as a whole in this first game first iteration without taylor one um yeah, so I totally agree with that uh, just in general. Like I have that experience almost every weekend where, you know, you, you can't watch an offensive line, a specific offensive lineman on every single play. Right. So it'll be like, you know, the five snaps that I happen to be watching Nate Davis are going to be what I base my opinion of him on or if exactly. he gives up some obvious sack. Um, so, yeah, to really have an opinion, you you got to grind the film, unfortunately. Um I think, you know, like I said, they moved the pocket around a lot. There weren't a lot of true just drop back pass sets um, that they were putting their tackles into. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the times that I saw NPF get beat, it was more of just like, you know, they're running play action boot to his side, which Mm -hmm. is actually kind of, which is, you know, technically moving the pocket, but that's a really difficult spot for an offensive tackle to be in i was just listening to mitchell schwartz on uh the athletic football show and he that was the first thing he said as far as the most like nerve-wracking most uh you know high pressure situations for an offensive tackle was running play action boot to their side um and so why why is that specifically for anybody that might not know right so um you know play action boot like is a designed rollout. So you're going to play action. Let's just say play action to the left. And then um, Ryan Tannehill is going to boot out to the right. And then you're going to have some, uh, some horizontal, like basically they call it a triangle read. Cause you're 
doing a levels concept and a high low anyways um and you're moving the pocket so you're faking run to the left so you're uh the offensive lineman is going to be getting into what looks like a reach block and then the defensive lineman is going to flow and then after a couple seconds uh the d line is going to realize oh the quarterback has the ball and you're on the move and it's unpredictable when they're going to uh read the play and recognize and start and then they're going to dart in the other direction and so being right on that play side where the quarterback's rolling right into the pressure you don't know if they're calling a run blitz or a stunt or whatever so you could have guys coming from all different sides and at a certain point assignments get thrown out the window thrown out the window because it's just a jumbled mess so being like on the place being on the play side of uh boot action is just you know there's a lot of stuff going on um and right. so that's that's kind of that's probably not where i would want to put a young player i also i mean i wouldn't want to put dennis daly there either um <laughs> either of yeah these no, players, I, yeah as far as as far as uh daily i agree with you um he had uh you know from the broadcast it looked like he had a pretty good game but um you know definitely got beat a lot uh the other thing i'll say with npf is they were running a lot of uh slants inside which is a, a really good way to um defeat wide zone because mm. you watch any wide zone play the way that you can tell if you're like just getting into watching film or whatever, the way that you can identify outside zone is, is, is if every offensive lineman is taking a a wide step in the same direction towards the play side, they're all going to be flowing laterally. And so if you're taking a wide step to the right, but you've got Max Crosby slanting inside, that's really difficult because you have to flip your hips around, stick that backside hand out to catch them. That's, tough to do for a rookie on max crosby and so um that's why you saw him you know have pretty low pff grades i think compared to what it seemed like i want to talk about another thing that is i think a a pretty good concept breaker for this titans team that we saw them employ a lot last week and that was using derrick henry more in the passing game on the Mike Herndon show that came out last night, Mike and I yesterday did a long film room and took a long look at a couple of the different things that the Titans did with Henry in the passing game and, and just how much free room defenses or this Raiders defense in particular, I suppose, was giving Henry in the middle of the field almost every single time that dump off was there. I wanted to get your take on their utilization of Henry in the passing game. You know, once he gets his hands on the ball and secures the ball, Obviously, Derrick Henry is a dynamic athlete in space and dangerous and can pick up chunk plays in that way. But it also is a way, I think, to keep defenses honest because they love in my experience, my my limited experience watching Titans tape as opposed to you. Defenses just love to play deep on this Titans team because they know, generally speaking, they love to hit these strike plays down the middle of the field. Um, work off the play action and 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 take chunks out of a defense with either their their limited passing game, but when they do pass the ball, they're looking for those strikes. With Henry, you're you're kind of keeping them honest in that way. To me, it seems is that kind of the the formula that you're seeing from them as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm going back and looking at uh, Derrick Henry's targets um, from this game just to see what coverage they're in. I, it's almost exclusive they're almost exclusively throwing these um passes to derrick henry against cover three which okay if so if if a team is playing a three deep coverage that means there's four underneath defenders compared with cover two for example which would have five underneath defenders assuming that you're rushing four and so um this is what you I mean, this is basically this is how Tom Brady got became the goat is by checking right. it down to James White. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, he would have like 19 catches for 80 yards in a single game <laughs> and they would all go for first downs because teams were just playing so much cover three back then. Um, and then but when you get coverages that crowd the middle of the field more, those opportunity like you know checking it down becomes a negative play checking it down becomes a three yard gain and now you're behind schedule instead of an eight yard gain like if you go back this is actually if you go back to the seattle game from last season seattle 
is the most notorious defense for playing the most cover three. Like that's what Pete Carroll loves to do. And there was that one drive, uh, probably like the third or fourth quarter where they were not only playing cover three, but they were playing like off cover three, taking super deep drops and just giving away that 10 yard check down to Derrick Henry every single play. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, anytime that I, I think that, Honestly, getting Derrick Henry involved in the passing game um, has a lot more to do with if the defense is giving you that option, then absolutely do it because he's capable. Um, I mean, he's shown over the last couple season seasons that he's improved his hands, you know, and he's not the shiftiest guy around the line of scrimmage. But if you get him the ball and like slip screens and stuff and he can build up some speed, um, I, I'm always in favor of that. But I, I do think that. Um, I do think it has a lot more to do with what the defense is giving you. If the Titans continue to utilize Henry or their backs in the passing game in that way, is it going to change the way the defenses approach the Titans offense? Um, let's see. I don't know. I mean, I think the one thing I would say, the main thing you don't want to do if you're worried about teams running screens is you don't want to blitz a lot. Right. Um, but I, I don't, you know, I'd have to check. I don't haven't noticed the Titans getting blitzed um, any more or less than other teams do. So, yeah, I would I would have to think about that and, you know, see what see what happens, see if there's anything I notice change. Gotcha. Well, let's turn our attention quickly before we get you out of here to the the Colts this week. First divisional matchup for the Titans on the road. Big game against a team that like the Titans has really struggled out of the gate this year. They got their first win last week against the Chiefs. This was the game as I was making way, my way out of the press box on Sunday, talking to some of the other reporters, just like, I can't wait to go home and watch this Colts game. Because, of course, we're paying attention to the game that we're at. It, when those games in the new window are on top of each other, I'm not getting to pay attention to any other game. But we're following the scores, and that game just seemed like, oh, man, like, is this? I was so curious to see what was real and and what was a a – box score scouting myth from this game and going back and watching it it was kind of what I expected to me it seemed like a really fraudulent win by the Colts it seemed like a game that the Chiefs blew in 19 different ways their special teams were atrocious did you get to watch that game at all at all and and did you have any takeaways from the Colts in that game yeah um I yeah I totally agree I mean anytime that you get gifted field position like inside the 10 yard line from a, a muffed punt yeah um and you know and it's like a 21 to 14 or 7 whatever the score was low scoring type of game um yeah i mean that obviously has a huge swing there were individual players on the colts that i was impressed with um like who you know stefan gilmore yeah i i actually i went back and watched all the colts film from this week because they they had just not been a team that I could stomach to watch over the the first couple of weeks. Um, Can't blame you. But yeah, Stefan Gilmore is still like a, a top ten ish corner. Wow, uh, really? A, a lot of nice plays. Yeah, and I mean, I, I've always I thought he played well last season, but nobody watched the Panthers. Yeah. Um, you know, I think he's still. I think he's in that phase of his career. How uh, old is he? Is he? Uh, he's in his thirties. He's in that phase okay. where he's good when healthy, right? And he'll probably be that for a couple years, and then kind of, you know, fall off like pretty much every corner does, unfortunately. Right. Um, and right. you know, they finally got tight end one Jelani Woods involved. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna, man, I'm gonna have to cheer on him, uh, cheer for him from afar for his entire career. He's a um, he's a red zone goblin so far in his career. Right. Yeah, I do not want. Zach Cunningham anywhere on his side of the field. He may not even uh, be on the field this at, week. At this, oh yeah, that's true. I mean, honestly though, David Long, um, two gross love options. Him a, love him as a player, but not the guy that I want. Just like the well, Jelani the, Woods, what six seven two six former basketball player, you know? Yeah. Um. So yeah, Jelani Woods, and then the last guy I'll say is um, Grover Stewart. It, oh, interesting. Uh, at at nose tackle has been impressive but yeah i mean as a whole like matt ryan man i like even as uh somewhat of a colts hater like i fell for the the colts quarterback like um me too preseason hype i mean honestly though because if you watch him from last year it really had nothing to do with colts hype or anything if you watch him from last year like he looked pretty good but 
yeah, man, he, uh, I think he might be kind of, kind of cooked at this point. Well, one last question on that point before we get you out of here. And we appreciate your time as always on a Friday, James, this Colts offense, obviously they're, they're, Passing threats are very limited, like the Titans, but I would argue even more so. Matt Ryan has looked like a, a bit of a washed king so far this year, and the the offensive line is a real question mark. What do you? I mean, do you think it's as simple as Matt Ryan is just his age is catching up with him? He he doesn't have it anymore, and I know it's a small sample size, so this is a projection. Or do you think it has more to do with with a guy like Matt Ryan? He has to have a clean pocket. He has to have a good offensive line. And this Colts line just is not what it has been the past couple of years. You know, Matt Ryan is not a very mobile quarterback, but he is kind of similar in um, similar to Tom Brady in that he just has outstanding pocket presence and just a great feel for um, subtle manipulation and like resetting his base and stuff. So he's actually a quarterback that I think can survive to an extent with a bad offensive line. Um, but obviously like any quarterback, I mean, if you're under pressure, it, when, when a quarterback's under pressure, every statistic just nose dives. So um, there's no quarterback that's going to be great with a bad offensive line. Um, yeah. I mean, as for the weapons, you've got Michael Pittman, who I don't like, I don't even know what Michael Pittman is. Um, I think he's honestly. a high end wide receiver too, but I, I don't think he fits yeah, that I, I starter think, I wide receiver one mold. Is. Um, and then you've got Alec Pierce, who is a jump ball receiver, but hasn't really shown anything more than that. Um, the thing is, though, like if Lonnie Johnson's back there, I don't trust him to win. You know, he made Mac Hollins look like Mike Evans. So um, we'll see. All right, James, you're the best. Uh, that's why we keep bringing you on each and every Friday. We love your insights, and uh, you bring a lot to the show. And we, we love chatting with you. I, I know all of our listeners really enjoy it each and every week. We will talk to you next week. Be good, my man. All right, peace out, man. All right, my favorite segment of the week, the best bet gauntlet. JT and I have been going head-to-head each and every week with our five best bets drafted. Uh, in in traditional draft snake order here, um, the current record is favoring me by a, a pretty significant margin. But JT took a big step in the right direction last week. I'm currently eight six and one on the year. JT at five and ten. Going to need to going to need to stack some good days to get back into the black here. JT did best me last week. I ended up going two two and one. He went three and two. Without further ado, let's just get into our favorite picks for this week and let's get out of here on a Friday. My first pick, I get to go first this week for the first time all year because uh, I did lose. I got to rock with the Vikings, minus three. Kirk Cousins in London, the early game on Sunday. Give me the Vikings giving or getting three points against the Jameis Less Saints, as well as the Michael Thomas Thomas Less Saints. The, the Saints team is so banged up right now. Even when they're healthy, they've not shown a ton of flash. I, I just I'm still liking the Vikings. I like what they're doing. I like their pieces in this spot. I think that they win handily. So give me the Vikings minus three. Yeah, I like that pick. It'll be really interesting with no Michael Thomas, no Jameis, relying on the Red Rifle, Andy Dalton, back in action, baby, in London. Well, and there's a point there to be made that this is the second, first of all, poor London, this is the second Kirk Cousins, Andy Dalton matchup they've had to endure, and the first one was a tie. So it's going to get weird. I hate it, but I I think the Vikings will win. Yeah, and I was just going to point out, maybe we see finally for people who are playing fantasy at home maybe we see an Alvin Kamara breakout this week I maybe like we'll that see. I have him on my team moving on with my first pick here for the week I'm gonna go with the Cardinals at minus one mm-hmm. at the Panthers listen the I I took uh the Rams last week against the Cardinals because it was the modern warfare beta the modern warfare beta <laughs> is now over Tyler's back on track. They're going to get a win here. I like the Cardinals here. Okay. With my second pick of the week for best bet gauntlet draft, I, for the fourth straight week, I'm picking the Titans. Listen, Homer pick. I know this is a Titans podcast. I feel obligated to pick them each week. This is my favorite one so far for them. Getting the hook plus three and a half on the road 
against the Colts. In any divisional matchup where two teams are pretty evenly matched, I love getting over three points given to you. So just on paper, blindly, I would be taking this. But the Titans, I have no reason to believe, we talked about this in the monologue today, no reason to believe that they're not the better team, no reason to believe that the Colts offer anything on the offensive side of the ball that that scares you all that much. I think that they went outright, and at the very least, I love getting over a field goal. So give me the Titans getting three and a half points. With my second pick, listen, these NFC West divisional rivalries just end up being kind of weird all the very, time. Yep. But I'm going to go with the Rams as underdogs this week going into San Francisco on a Monday okay. night. I think just like last week, I think the same thing happens. I think the Rams get out to a hot start like they do. And even if they cool down like they did against the Cardinals, after watching highlights of that game on Monday night last week for Jimmy G and the gang, it's just, it, I don't think they'll it do enough. Gross. It was gross. I don't think yeah. they'll do enough to get back. So give me the Rams at plus one and a half. All right, with my third pick of the week four best bet gauntlet draft, give me the Raiders to get off the schneid. Two and a half point favorites at home hosting divisional rival, uh, the Let's Ride Broncos. Russ coming to town. The Broncos have been, I mean, are they the most fraudulent to win team in the league? I think that they are in that conversation. They've done nothing impressive besides a single drive against San Francisco last week. I have no reason to believe that the Raiders aren't going to be incredibly desperate for this game. They're going to throw the kitchen sink at this game to get their first win because they absolutely must start winning if they want their season to uh, go anywhere at this point. I think that they will. I think they'll get their first win. Give me the Raiders minus two and a half to cover. I think you're missing one point. I like that pick, but I think you're missing one point there. And you just got to see if Russ is going to have his signature sandwich. He's going to have the danger wish. <laughs> yeah, I, this this pick is contingent on finding out what Russ had before the game. If he puts <laughs> down a full danger witch, then I might have to take it off the table. Might have to buy out. We'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. Keep We'll keep you updated with that as we get closer. I'm going to go with my third pick. It seems like you love taking the Titans, and more and more every week, I love riding with the Motor City Kitties. So give Love me it. the Lions minus four okay. hosting the Seattle Seahawks this week. Nothing too particular. I just think Seattle's good. I think the Lions offense, or sorry, bad Seattle bad. What? There you Seattle go, Seattle bad. bad. Lion offense, good. Yes. Lion defense, also pretty good. That's my reasoning. I'm going with the Lions minus four. I like that pick. I like that pick. With my fourth pick in the draft, a team that I continue to take week after week, and they are 3-0 against the spread, haven't let me down yet. The Dirty Birds down in Atlanta giving or getting rather one point at home, a home dog plus one hosting the Cleveland Browns this week. I, I think it's pretty simple. I like Atlanta's offense. I think that they're sneaky good. Arthur Smith, Marcus Mariota, and those weapons down there are doing some really interesting things. Kyle Pitts, Corderic, Henry, all of those guys. Uh, so I, I like that offense. Their defense is kind of tissue paper, but I, I like the, their chances of making this into a boat race. Um, not a boat race. I mean, I'd love for them to boat race them and cover. But making it into a um, just a sprint of a game. Offensively, the Cleveland Browns, I don't think, can keep up with this Atlanta team. And as long as Cleveland's defense doesn't have a juggernaut game, I could see them just not being able to keep up with the offensive firepower that the Falcons have. So give me the Falcons to uh, win outright, not just cover as a home dog. My fourth pick, kind of after my third one, there wasn't really anything that I loved on this board. Getting thin, yeah. It's really getting thin this week. It's really kind of interesting all the lines this week vegas doesn't make it easy on us go figure no. um <laughs> that would give me make money give me the eagles minus six and a half really okay they're they're hosting the jaguars here doug peterson returning but i mean so far i mean we said that the vikings game every, all the money was on the vikings and the eagles blow them out i think the Eagles 
are going to ride the hot hand of being the only undefeated team here, go 4-0, beat them pretty handedly. That's really all I got on that pick. That's how I'm seeing that game currently. I like that pick as well. Talk about that in the monologue as well. Kind of think that the Jaguars, not fraudulent. I think that they're progressing and, and they're a real team, but I'm not sure how much you can take away from that week three win over a decimated Chargers roster. My fifth and final pick of the week. Give me the Steelers. Minus three. They are playing against the Jets this week. I think the Jets bringing back in Zach Wilson. That's going to be a little bit of a downgrade at quarterback, at least at first. I'm not sure what we're going to expect to see from him his first week back. I I like the Steelers in this kind of spot to win and cover. Uh, It's really that simple. I just trust this Steelers team top to bottom more than I trust the Jets. For the second week in a row, we're going to have another head-to-head here because I will be taking the other side of this. All right. Talk to me. Not not really for anything different. I am really interested in seeing how Zach Wilson does. Personally, I don't think the floor can go any lower than a, what, how old is Joe Flacco now? I I don't even know, but I don't think it can go. 53. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) A 53-year-old Joe Flacco. I don't think it can get any worse. I think there's room for improvement, but it's not so much I'm taking this line because of that. I'm taking it for the other side of the ball. And I just think this Steelers offense is not very good. And it's not, no. I think it's going to be a close game regardless. All right. So you are taking top to bottom Cardinals minus one Rams plus one and a half Lions minus four Eagles minus six and a half and Jets plus three. And I will be riding with the Vikings minus three Titans plus three and a half Raiders minus two and a half Falcons plus one and Steelers minus three. And that's going to do it for us today on a Friday. Before you go, a couple of quick things. If you're not subscribed, to the show, wherever you get your good podcasts, then you got to go do that. Subscribe, leave us a five-star review. Your feedback is a gift. We appreciate it. The 10 seconds it takes for you to give us a review means so much more to us than it does to you. We will really appreciate if you go and do that. Say whatever you want. We'll shout you out on the show. If you're not a Broadway insider, what are you doing? The Mike Herndon show yesterday was phenomenal. We did like an hour and a half of tape study. It's a ridiculously long episode, but it's so, so good. You're not going to get that kind of content anywhere else. And you can get it only in full if you're a Broadway insider. So go and do that today. Go to broadwaysportsmedia.com, become an insider. If you are not listening to our other podcasts on the Broadway Sports Media and 440 Podcast Networks, what are you doing? The Hot Read Podcast is joined by the Football and Other F-Words Podcast, which is a big, big show. My buddy Zach Lyons and, and Mike Herndon do on Wednesdays. Music City Audible twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Second and Victory on Thursdays as well chock full of great stuff so make sure you're checking that out and i think that we are done here jt we'll be back of course on a monday morning bright and early reacting to the titans first divisional game of the year hope you guys enjoy that have a great weekend for jt i'm easton this has been the hot raid we'll talk to you next week Scream is what I'm throwing at the end of the episode as a teaser. Okay, a, uh, I want to just start doing that on every episode. If there's any any weird soundbite that we can throw at the end, <laughs> we should and see if people start to catch on. <laughs>